This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. This is episode 157, entitled The Hymn to God and the Lamb in Revelation chapter 7. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. I hope you have all been enjoying our series on worship hymns located within the narrative of the book of Revelation. I personally have been learning a lot by examining the details of these various call and response hymns, so I hope that you too are blessed by the fruits of my research. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will explore the third call and response hymn in the book of Revelation, which is located in chapter 7. This particular hymn demonstrates a development in worship from what can be observed in the previous two hymns by depicting Christians singing to both God and Jesus in a single hymn. What are the implications of worshiping Jesus alongside the only true God? Does Revelation encourage this manner of worship, or does it qualify the way in which you should worship these two persons? And is the identity of the true God threatened by singing to him and to Jesus within the same hymn? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the third hymn within the book of Revelation. I'll be reading our primary passage, Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. Now what we can see from this hymn is that it is as we've seen previously in Revelation, a call and response hymn. The call and response are divided evenly into two verse sections. The call is in verses 9 through 10, and the response is in verses 11 through 12. Now, in regard to the call portion of the hymn, the subject, those who are singing this, is identified as 
the great multitude. And this great multitude is clothed in white robes, and they are holding on to palm branches. Now later in this section, there is a question asked regarding the identity of this great multitude. And John the Revelator is told in verse 14 that, quote, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7:14. And so we have a description here of those who are coming, literally the ones who are coming, e erkomeni in Greek, the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. This is a present tense designation, and the vision here indicates that these singers of this hymn are those who are habitually coming out of a great tribulation, and they are doing so by not compromising their faith. They're not accommodating with the culture, and they're certainly not giving up the faith. They are continually coming out and exiting tribulation without compromising, accommodating, or giving up. They are also described as those who have already washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. This indicates that they have identified with the death of Jesus. And of course, by describing them as coming from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, this indicates that they are believing people of God. And of course, this draws back to the previous hymn in chapter 5, where these singers are described in the very same language. Chapter 5, verse 9. Now, there's a literary device used throughout the book of Revelation called the hearing and seeing motif. And by observing the hearing and seeing motif in Revelation chapter 7, we can further identify the singers of this hymn. Earlier in chapter 7, John hears about a group of 144,000 persons coming from Israelite tribes. That's what he hears. But in chapter 7, verse 9, John sees a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the way that the hearing and seeing motif works in Revelation's narrative is that John will hear something, and then immediately he will turn and he will see something else. And the way that the literary device functions is that what John sees further interprets what he just heard. So in this case, John sees a great multitude from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, and that further interprets the 144,000 people from God. And so this great multitude is thus a fulfillment of the people of God. It is a multi-ethnic gathering of people from the people of God that have identified with the death of Jesus. It is not strictly saying a group of Israelites. It is the new Israel. It is the fulfilled Israel. It is the united people of God from all nations that have identified with Jesus being defined as the fulfillment of Israel. And of course, the number 144,000 
which is a collection of 12 times 12,000, indicates various numbers of fulfillment. The numbers 12 and the numbers 1,000 and the multiples thereof are complete numbers within the imagery of Revelation. So we have numbers indicating the fulfillment of the people of God being described here as a great multitude from every nation. This is clearly a Christian designation in fulfillment of the purposes of God. So enough about the singers. Let's look at the object. Who are the objects of worship? Well, our passage says that salvation be to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is very significant. Both God and Jesus are objects of worship within a single hymn. This is actually brand new to Revelation, and arguably, this is brand new to the New Testament as a whole. You do not see hymns sung directly to both God and Jesus in any passages in which form critics have proposed are early Christian hymns, such as Philippians 2, Colossians 1, the opening of Hebrews chapter 1. Some form critics think that 1 Timothy 3.16 and following is an early Christian hymn, but none of these hymns have both God and Jesus as the objects of worship. It's very interesting. So we'll talk about the objects of worship later when we look at the implications of this hymn in Revelation 7 for monotheistic settings. So we have the call and response portion. The call comes and is initiated by the believing people of God who have identified themselves with Jesus, who are faithfully living Christian lives by refusing to accommodate. They are singing to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. But now we move to the response portion, verses 10 and 11 of Revelation chapter 7. And it appears in our passage as if all of the angels are singing the response portion, and they do so as an approval of the worship that has been initiated by the redeemed people of God. In other words, the response that is sung by the heavenly angels suggests that heaven accepts the worship offered by the redeemed people of God given to God and to the Lamb. A hymn sung to God and Jesus is acceptable worship. The angels respond, of course, by falling on their faces before the throne, and their response actually focuses onto a single object of worship, namely the one seated upon the throne. And this one seated upon the throne is defined as our God and the God in the Greek text with the definite article. And their response offers seven accolades of praise. And these seven accolades are enclosed by two amen statements. This is called an inclusio. And of course, by offering seven elements of praise to God, seven being a number of completion, this would indicate a perfect worship offered to the one seated upon the throne indicated by a beginning amen and a concluding amen. It would seem that worship offered 
by the redeemed people of God unto the one seated upon the throne and Jesus is regarded by the angels as worship, honoring God alone. Not unlike what we see in Philippians 2.11, where worship offered to a highly exalted Jesus is ultimately to the glory of God the Father. So ultimately, God is given glory when worship is offered to God and Jesus. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two, the role of the readers in Revelation chapter 7. So we've identified the singers of the call portion as ideal Christians. That's very important. In our previous hymns, Revelation's ideal readers take active roles in the hymns, either offering the call portion or the response portion. As we've seen in our worship hymn located in Revelation chapter 7, the readers of Revelation take the call portion, thus initiating the offering of worship. Since the great multitude is a further interpretation of the 144,000, we need to ask about the intended imagery used to describe this group. Why would Christians be seen as the fulfillment of 144,000? Well, the designation of the 144,000 as these groups that are numbered among 12 tribes recalls the book of Numbers chapter 1. And if you go back and you look at the book of Numbers in the first chapter, you can see that a census is being taken of the children of Israel to where each tribe numbers their persons. And it is spelled out in a similar way that we see at the beginning of Revelation chapter 7. Now, the purpose of taking a census was to measure the strength of an army. So this is very interesting. We have the people of God that are worshiping being described with military images. This is not surprising for us because Revelation has already described the faithful people of God as conquerors, as those who are overcoming. This is demonstrated in each of the letters to the seven churches. So this army military metaphor fits fairly well. The sense is that these worshipers are engaged in a matter of spiritual warfare. And as the narrative of Revelation is going to continue to demonstrate, the enemies of the spiritual warfare are the dragon and his empowered beast. The army of conquerors succeed in their conquering as they come out of great tribulation without compromising, without accommodating, and without giving up their faith. And in doing so, they are offering worship unto God and to the Lamb. This song of worship ascribes salvation unto the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. But perhaps this word salvation is better translated as victory. Victory to our enthroned God and to the Lamb. There's not actually a verb within this song, other than the fact that God is enthroned. 
but the salvation slash victory is offered to God and to the Lamb, as with the dative case, which is the to or for case. Now, what would it mean for Christians to be ascribing victory to God and to the Lamb? What is its significance? Why would this be listed here? Now, in the Greco-Roman world, salvation was a reference to the deliverance brought about by the emperor of Rome. Rome established the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace, and by doing so, Rome ended the civil wars that were plaguing the world, and they created this supposed peace. I say a supposed peace because Rome continued to expand their imperialistic ways, and we have evidence of Latin writers criticizing this supposed peace in light of how everybody knew that there was a desolating imperialism that continued to take place despite the continued claims that there was peace within Rome. Either way, the salvation slash victory was something that good citizens of the Roman Empire would be ascribing to the emperor, to Caesar. He had brought peace and safety to their world, and the people should respond in their believing obedience by bowing the knee to Caesar. Many of Revelation's original readers would have been tempted to offer worship to God and Jesus on Sundays and to also worship the imperial cult on the other days. From the perspective of the writer of Revelation, this is compromise and accommodation. This is not an approved form of worship. Revelation's hymns push back against this compromising tendency, and these hymns envision instead the faithful people of God singing a victory belonging to the God enthroned in heaven and to the Lamb, not to Caesar. Stated differently, salvation and victory are ascribed only to authorized objects of Christian worship, to God and to Jesus. Now, by refusing to participate in the worship of the imperial cult, Revelation's readers would naturally come under affliction, persecution, and tribulation. We know this to be true from history. This is why the faithful worshipers are depicted as those who are coming out of this great tribulation, having not given up their faith nor accommodated to these false forms of worship. From the perspective of Revelation's application that is expected from its ideal readers, offering worship to God and the Lamb goes hand-in-hand with faithfully living a Christian life of conquerors. The narrative of Revelation does not come out and say that believers who see themselves as faithful should ascribe salvific victory to God and to the Lamb. It actually envisions them doing so, using the present tense of the verb. They are singing. 
they are saying this to God and to the Lamb. By declaring that only God and the Lamb are worthy of worship, the people of God resist religious accommodation, idolatry, and the compromising behavior associated with these deeds. Okay, enough about that. Let's move on to our third point, which is the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting, or as people might call, the application of this passage for modern monotheistic worship. It is probably not insignificant that this appears to be the first Christian hymn addressed to both God and Jesus. It is an interesting development, to be sure, but it's nothing out of the ordinary when we consider that the first hymn in Revelation's narrative was directed to God, and the second hymn in Revelation's narrative was directed to the Lamb. I should also point out that the Holy Spirit is not addressed as an object of worship, nor mentioned anywhere in this passage. Worship is only offered to God and to Jesus. These two are the only authorized persons for hymnic worship. There seems to also be a comfort level with worshiping Jesus alongside God that was held by these early Christians. And this is something that biblical Unitarians need to be mindful of as they think through the proper ways to show acceptable worship within a monotheistic setting. It is also noteworthy that the one seated upon the throne is defined as, quote, our God, end quote, by both the singers and the responding angels. On the part of the singers, the reference to our God is clearly distinguished from the reference to the Lamb. In other words, while it is significant that the Lamb is worshipped alongside God in this hymn, the Lamb is never confused with the true God, nor are the two persons collapsed into a single being called our God. Worship is offered to our God and to the Lamb. And when you look at how the phrase, our God, is used throughout the book of Revelation, two important conclusions can be drawn. First, the phrase, our God, always appears in the hymns within Revelation, not outside the hymns. This suggests that there is a close link between correctly identifying our God with the actual practice of singing hymns of worship. How you worship is just as important as who you worship. Number two, the reference to our God always in these hymns refers to the Father, the God of Jesus, the one seated upon the throne. The phrase our God never refers to the Lamb. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation weaves worship hymns into its narrative 
and its attempts to encourage Christians to remain faithful to God and to the Lamb in the midst of a culture that seeks to foster compromise. In doing so, we can learn much about the early Christian worship practices. First, we notice that this third call-and-response hymn is initiated by the ideal readers of Revelation, the faithful people of God. By portraying the singers as clothed in white robes, washed in the blood of Jesus, holding onto palm branches, and coming from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, the subject of the singing is clearly Christian. The objects of worship are both the one seated upon the throne and the Lamb. While the call portion of this hymn to God and to the Lamb is initiated by the people of God, the response is given by the heavenly angels, thus approving of this worship offered to both God and Jesus. Second, we observe that the hymn's initial readers are described in detail in the surrounding verses of the hymn. Those who worship God and the Lamb are portrayed as conquering members of an army, enacting spiritual warfare against those who harass and afflict them with tribulation. In fact, these faithful singers are highlighted as those who are coming out of tribulation. And in the process, they refuse to compromise, accommodate, or give up the faith. Furthermore, the contents of their worship ascribes a salvific victory unto God and unto the Lamb, thus openly and deliberately subverting the claims of Roman imperial peace and of those who ascribed victory to Caesar. By offering victory to God and to the Lamb, these worshipers are saying that only these two persons are worthy of such high praise, thus excluding all other contenders. Lastly, we explored the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting and drew a number of conclusions. It seems like a natural development to go from singing a hymn to God and singing a hymn to the Lamb to singing a single hymn to both God and the Lamb. We noted that the Holy Spirit does not appear anywhere in this hymn, as the only objects of approved worship are God and Jesus. Furthermore, we observe that God is defined in this hymn, both in the call and in the response portions, as our God. In doing so, the singers clearly differentiate our God from the Lamb, never confusing them nor collapsing them into a single being. In other words, while Christians should worship both God and Jesus, the true God's identity is not altered nor threatened in the process. By portraying a worship hymn sung to both the true God and to the Lamb, 
the book of Revelation exhibits what we might call a high human Christology, while the hymn is incoherent within a Trinitarian understanding of God. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we continue to explore the hymns within the book of Revelation by looking at the call and response song in chapter 11, where worship is given in response to the consummation of the kingdom of God. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and write an honest review on iTunes. If you would like to donate to the podcast, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Please also be aware that we have started a YouTube channel of videos that go along with the weekly podcast. The link is also in the description of this episode. And I want to offer a special thanks to our editor and producer, Dustin Williams, for his tireless and faithful work each and every week of the podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, take care.